A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh... On today's show, we welcome Dr. Ryan Marino, an emergency medicine physician and medical toxicologist who works at the University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. We're excited to have him. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the House of Pot. I'm Kabe. I'm Lizzie. How you doing, Lizzie? I'm good. Where's Joe? He's at a doctor who's getting his uh, foreskin replaced. Ooh, rejuvenation? Yeah. It's actually, I'm not kidding. That's actually like a, a a movement. I don't know if you know this, but there are like corners of the internet. There have been for a long time. It's not new where men are like, uh, you know, not only angry about the fact that their foreskin was taken without their consent, but they like want it like replaced. And so there's ways to do that like huh. there's some surgical stuff i think but the one thing that i was explained by this guy who's doing it mm-hmm. was uh <laughs> i'm not making this up you're looking at me like i'm making it up but i'm not a series of weights 
that were like clipped around the skin mm. around like the junk to like pull, pull. and over time like yeah. you know that's like ingrid Lim with her tissue expander to get new breasts i guess it's like a tissue expander for the foreskin the, well, you made it French. I know. I just, I was thinking maybe we should get Umang Meta back on the show. Our plastic surgeon, buddy. yeah, to talk about how to do it because maybe he would have some insight. Because I've never heard of that, but I have met, and this is sort of shocking. I've I've met a pediatrician, not many, literally, I think just one, who really was personally opposed to circumcision and and hated performing him, and and. If people don't know, in hospitals, pediatricians are often the ones who do it. I guess you can get a urologist who's a surgeon, who's the expert in penis and prostate and kidneys. Um, but uh, she really didn't like doing it. And I couldn't mm. tell which happened first, the chicken or the egg. My guess is she was yeah. really bad at them and didn't like doing them and then became philosophically opposed to them. Yeah, you don't want someone who's not fully in the game, doesn't, as the saying go, have skin in the game. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like you want someone who is fully committed to that process. Right. right. In that scenario, I was like, I'd rather have a moil who's like the Jewish rabbi or trained person do it because you yeah. know those guys do like hundreds a week, right? right? You'd rather have someone who's done hundreds a week than a pediatrician who's a medically trained doctor do it once a month or so who hated doing it. I, I will tell you from uh, my personal experience when my, my oldest went to get his done. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to tell the, us about your circumstances. <laughs> I remember it. Anyways, so this pediatrician comes in to, to take the kid to go do the circumcision and that's stressful. Like, uh, that's a stressful hour, 30 minutes, what, I forget what it was. And um, when she came back, I remember she had like this look on her face, like surprise. Like she was like, I did a pretty good job. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, well, that's great, but why are you so surprised? That's oh, upsetting. That was a little bit upsetting, mm. but it was. I mean, to her credit, she did a fantastic job. I mean, it's good stuff. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, Joe's not getting that done. I don't think. I mean, we'll ask him, right? When he comes back. You never know. The man is full of mystery. So I have a question for you yeah, or other doctors, if you're listening to answer, but when a patient, you know, is coming to you for distress, for whatever reason that is, you know, we see a lot of abdominal pain, you know, for many different reasons. And many times we can't find out the cause of the pain. And sometimes I'll have patients say to me very point blank, do you think stress is causing my pain or my symptoms? Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you say to that? Cause I think it, I get it a lot. I think it's a great question and I have a spiel and, and not just bullshit words that I'm saying, but what I believe is true, but I wanted to know what you thought. Um, yeah, that's a good question. It does come up a lot. I, I do think what I, I, um, what I tell them is what I believe, which is that no matter what is happening in your GI system, from the smallest malady to full-blown cancer, whatever you, whatever is going on, stress will make it worse. Yeah. The stress is going to make it worse. And in certain people, it's going to make it much worse than others. And that just kind of depends on how you're wired. I mean, the gut, you know, it it, it just doesn't have quite the same quality control, I feel, that yeah. like, say, your brain does, which right. is full of neurons. So when that happens, sometimes things can misfire and sometimes there can be hypersensitivity. And sometimes if, if you want to look at it like the dial on like the volume knob that senses things in your gut is up too high. Like yeah. maybe it should be at like a level three and their gut is up at like a level six or seven and anything that's going on in there stress wise only makes that process worse. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I say the same thing that stress 
is bad for everything head to toe. doesn't matter what's going on in your life or your body. Um, but, and then I also t- say, oh, almost always say the following, you know, it's just so subjective and intangible and abstract. And I can't tell you if today your level of stress is eight and last month your level of stress was two and that's why today you're feeling worse. You know, it's not quantifiable yeah. and therefore, you know, it's, we have to make really good guesses, you know? And yeah, I use the analogy for your central nervous system in your brain. And if you can explain to me like all about depression, which we can't really that well, you know, like the chemical imbalance, we have a lot of ideas and we do have data, but there's people who respond to one medicine and don't respond to another, you know, in different categories or different brands. And we we can't explain this stuff. And I don't know, I get it a lot. And I sort of want to know, you know, it just seems almost common sense to me. But when I say it, I mean it and I feel like I'm reassuring patients and I'm not sure if it's helping at all, you know? I think it does. I mean, I think the important thing for some of these people um, is that they, they understand that there's a real process behind it. I think a lot of times people come to us with some of these issues and they are wondering if they're just crazy. Yeah. And they're wondering that probably because some doctor has made them feel that way. You know, and and um, and I'm not saying they're not crazy. Some of them very well may be. But the truth of it is, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the gut that we can't totally explain yet. And it's a lot of it probably has to do with the way they're innervated in their nervous system. And, and there is probably times when that plays a major factor. In it. Yeah. And that's so it's a real thing. It's a real process. We may not have like a great understanding of it. We, we may not yet have a great treatment for some of these things. But, you know. I think eventually we will. I think eventually we'll have a better understanding of some of these vague GI problems that we can't really treat all that well now. And we'll look back at what we did now and we'll be like, ooh, we were pretty brutal back then. I definitely got an email about a year ago that said that a patient of mine thought that she had POTUS-induced GI distress. (laughs) So this is a very San Francisco-related problem. So she said that when the president came around yeah it really that increased her gi issues yeah no it was total and ibs is irritable bowel syndrome and it's essentially like a a nervous upset gut that we can't objectively quantify or show you a piece of data that says you have it we have to rule everything else out it's a tough diagnosis many hundreds of thousands people across the world have it and this person thought that it was potus induced which i really thought should be like a medical kind of diagnosis i enjoyed that I bet you anything, if you like look at sort of like left-leaning places, just cities, if you go to like cities, right, we tend to be left-leaning, I bet you anything, you probably saw rates of IBS, right, right. like go up. Right. Or every, like every sort of like or functional visits. problem or like neurological issue, probably yeah. there was some increase in those. Yeah. Yeah. We should do a study. How many doctor visit increases in left-leaning cities? How many more colonoscopies? How many more, you know, sort of procedurally based things that were done or office visits? That would be a good one. All right. All right. Stay tuned. Coming up next, we have Dr. Ryan Marino. Have you ever wondered what a toxicologist does? You're going to find out. Stay tuned. Ryan Marino, he is an emergency medicine physician and a medical toxicologist. 
He works at the University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, and he's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think, honestly, from TV, movies, books, you know, everyone sort of has an idea, whether you're in medicine or not, like what emergency room doctors do, even though sub, you know, on, as a, an aside, that's not what they do because TV and movies are not real. But can you tell <laughs> us like what toxicology is? Um, because it really is commonly an ER doctor's sort of subspecialty. And I don't think a lot of people, even a lot of doctors might not know this. Yeah, so medical toxicology um, is a subspecialty you can access from multiple routes. I did it from emergency medicine, um, but it's basically the management of poisoned patients. And most commonly, I think it's accessed through emergency medicine because usually these are kind of emergent, more urgent situations um, that you want to be involved in. But uh, anything from accidental overdoses, drugs of abuse that we tend to think of, um, like street drugs uh, versus people who overdose on their own medications and suicide attempts, um, people who get toxicity from the medications they're taking. Um, we know a lot, of, a lot of the drugs that we prescribe for people have very narrow therapeutic margins. Um, and then also, I mean, any sort of accidental ingestions, um, environmental exposures, heavy metals, that kind of stuff. It's, it's very broad. Um, I mean, nuclear accidents would also fall under kind of the management of poison patients. So that, that kind of shows how broad it really is. So as, as liver doctors, Kaveh and I most commonly see and get asked about Tylenol overdose, is that maybe the most common thing you see as well? Yeah. There- so in term, in terms of overdoses and like true um, drug toxicity, I think Tylenol is probably the most common thing that I see whether or not, I, I mean, I'd guess it's probably the most common thing overall. Um, I do see a lot of stuff like alcohol, alcohol withdrawal um, um, as well. But yeah, Tylenol, I mean, it's kind of like bread and butter um, for medical toxicology and involves the liver. uh, And it's something I love to treat. Uh, It's the number one cause of liver failure in developed nations like like the United States, um, Canada and North America. So it's a real issue. Yeah. You know, you mentioned sort of patients being poisoned, and you mentioned drugs of abuse, and there's a lot of discussion right now in the country about the opioid crisis. Just a couple of questions about what is deemed the opioid crisis here. Um, and you have this perspective from being on the front lines. Is is it overblown or is it underrated? Where Where is it? So that's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think the news and like coverage is sensationalized, uh, but I do not think it's accurate. I think um, the overdose crisis, which doesn't just involve opioids, um, although certainly opioids uh, have been the most deadly in recent years, is something that is not receiving appropriate um, coverage. Uh, I don't I don't think people are willing to talk about the, the real things that we need to talk about, even though this has been going on for years. What do you mean? What are the real things that we need to talk about? So let's get to it, Ryan. Let's get real. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we've had the tools to treat this problem for decades, uh, if not longer. And for whatever reason, it's I mean, when did the quote unquote opioid epidemic start being covered in the news? It's been like at least 
three or four years now, uh, and it doesn't seem like we're really making any difference here. So, I mean, things like Narcan are still controversial. Narcan was uh, FDA approved in the early 70s. Um, Can you tell our listeners what it what it is and what it does? Yeah, so Narcan or Naloxone, Narcan's the brand name, Naloxone is the drug, uh, is the only antidote for opioid overdose. So it will push heroin, fentanyl, whatever, off of the receptors uh, that are causing the overdose, bring that person back, make them start breathing again, um, and prevent them from dying. And we've had this drug for decades, approved for this purpose, and for whatever reason, I mean, even today, it's still controversial. People still say, oh, maybe we shouldn't really be using this as much. Um, but the only alternative when you're outside of a hospital, outside of having like EMS, uh, people who can do medical interventions, the, the alternative to Narcan is death. Isn't um, it, didn't the laws change recently where you could get a prescription or we, that we want Narcan more universally available because of these overdeaths that EMS can do it, you know, if you have a son or daughter or partner who's abusing heroin or fentanyl, that you can go, you can get Narcan now, can't you? Because it used to be just hospital, confined to the hospital. So yes and no. Um, There are what are called standing orders or basically like prescriptions written by the top doctor in every state, um, like whoever uh, the Surgeon General equivalent at a state level would be. Um, I think last I checked in 49 states. Um, and so theoretically, you can go to any pharmacy and get this prescription medication without a prescription because it's already written for you and your insurance should cover the majority of the expense. The problem is that pharmacies are allowed to refuse to stock this or refuse to honor this based on their own, whoever the manager um, or corporate policy uh, is regarding substance users or people who use drugs. If if they don't think they should be giving people Narcan, then they don't have to do that. So even though at a state level it should be available everywhere, it is still not available in a lot of places. So there's variety among states and variety among companies. That's um, obviously confusing and probably dangerous. So, you know, first of all, I didn't know that we had state surgeon generals. That is definitely my next gig <laughs> i'm gonna start working on that listeners if you can write me in i don't know if that's something we can vote on <laughs> write me in um but it's interesting what you're talking so of how you're describing this it reminds me a lot of an episode we did with a guy named uh bobby davari doctor who works with alcohol abuse and medications to treat uh, alcohol abuse it's medications that have been there for a long time but it's been that really nobody has seemed to want to pick that up, pick up the mantle and start treatment of these things. And a lot of that seems to be because of um, sort of moral judgments, it, it seems to us, about these people who have these problems. Um, you work with a lot of these patients. You see these people every day. What would you say are myths or misconceptions that people have about opioid users and opioid use? So, I mean, I think the first and biggest thing is this is a an affliction or a problem. Um, I'm not necessarily sure a disease uh, that can affect everyone. It and it does affect everyone. The things you see TV movies, it's I mean, like the people from the streets, people living in squalor, um, people who are like choosing a life of crime. 
um, are the ones who get addicted to opioids, but that's not the case. Uh, people from all walks of life, people with the best upbringing, everything available to them, and then people with the hardest circumstances as well uh, can can end up with these these addiction issues. And it's not just opioids, um, but I mean, there are there are also a lot of like socioeconomic things at play that increase people's risk of developing kind of substance use problems. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, I think the characterization of people who use drugs as just having moral failures. Um, I mean, I, you hear every year stories about people wanting to give drugs out in Halloween candy, right. like they're out, out, out to get your kids. Right. right. Um, Which is weird, right? Cause I assume that these drugs are expensive. Like why would people, why would they do that? Like, why would that story spread? Like, how how would somebody ever want to do that? Like, waste their drugs by right. giving it out for free to kids? I mean, the only person who has that agenda would be a drug dealer, who, by the way, probably hope isn't using drugs. They want the addiction to start, but sneaking it in one piece of Halloween candy Boy, is that's, not... that's a real subtle long-term yeah, approach that's, if that's ever happened. That's playing a long game do, that's not going to work. Do, Ryan, do you find yourself dealing with a lot of these sort of weird urban myths? uh yeah i mean literally every day it's... yeah literally and i like what um, you said about um and we talked about this with reina oddish you know it's it's not a moral issue right like maybe that first decision to take a drug or to do that thing is a moral decision but then after that there's no moral crisis it's chemical physical psychological head to toe addiction dependence on this substance and you don't actually have a choice and that's where i think a lot of the political structure falls apart you know the support the moral support the financial support the political support falls apart because people are judging these people as dirty users you know yeah and i think to speak to that one thing that surprises people most i don't have the exact numbers in front of me but it's something like 80 or 90 percent of people who try even a drug like heroin do not go on to develop addiction to heroin. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of blows people's minds because they think anyone who would ever try heroin has something wrong with them where they're going out of their way to use this drug. Of course, they're going to end up addicted or that heroin itself is just such like a, a boogeyman right. um, that it sucks you in and gets people addicted. And that's really not the case. So you mentioned sort of like you deal every day with dispelling these myths like what what myths are you dispelling um a, a lot of them i think most often recently uh it's been well recently as in like several years uh i've done a lot of work with narcan um and trying to get like more narcan get narcan available and i think one of the most frustrating things to me is that people even in inside of the healthcare community um, are very resistant to this and have their own preconceived notions about how Narcan, uh, a drug that is literally saving someone's life akin to like an EpiPen or a uh, defibrillator, mm -hmm. uh, bringing someone back from a heart attack. This is something that might, might lead someone to use more drugs um, or might lead them to uh, be saved so that they can go on and like hurt mm -hmm. hurt people after their life is saved. Right, sort of like the discussion with prep, 
Like people say, like prep that pre-exposure prophylaxis to HIV. Like people are like, oh, if you give that out, then these people are just going to have even more like dangerous sex and other things are going to happen from it. But it doesn't seem like that's the case. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have some statistics that show that these things help, right? Like Narcan. Yeah, there is a very large body of evidence that's been studying Narcan for years. Um, I mean, the state of Massachusetts had some of the earliest, uh, like large outbreaks of opioid overdose deaths, I think in the, around 2012, um, and initiated a lot of community Narcan programs. And they showed very early on that getting more Narcan out just saved lives, saved everyone in the community's money, like had more people working jobs, reduced crime. I mean, kind of everything you want from a societal intervention um, and for whatever reason, people to this day just don't don't believe that data. And this has been repeated multiple times. Um, and I mean, someone today on Twitter told me that I shouldn't shouldn't uh, believe other people's data. I should do my own research on this. <laughs> That's nice. Very, very. We love Twitter. Twitter and trolling is the best. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, ahead. I did do research on Narcan. Um, and I was not looking for this specifically. I was trying to increase Narcan in emergency departments and found that there are significant unconscious, well, likely unconscious biases. I'm hoping they're unconscious, but significant mm -hmm. biases in providers and how they give out Narcan. And there seems to be a big difference on people's age, uh, race and gender, whether they receive Narcan or not. Right. So obviously there's a lot of misconception about Narcan, but, you know, everything that's out now with all these lawsuits and settlements that are happening, honestly, now, as we speak, really, um, it seems like a lot of the misconception that I think maybe is the most egregious and most important for people to hear is that, you know, when these drugs came out 20, 30 years ago, the pharmaceutical companies and, and therefore doctors were very much arguing the case that they were not addictive if used, quote unquote, properly. And that is the thing that I, I think is, you know, wrong and probably illegal and resulting in all these settlements. And, you know, what's happening now is very similar to what is ha what happened 30 years ago with the tobacco industry. And it's just mm -hmm. a mass um, deception, a very deliberate deception of the public. And it's totally appropriate that, you know, we're reading about millions. There should be billions and, and far more and maybe jail time for individuals because it's been such a deliberate deception. Yeah, it has. And I mean, I think the kind of, uh, that I would classify as medical misinformation. And I think there are people who purposefully put out medical misinformation and it leads to very real harms for people. Um, and I think this is kind of one of the most egregious examples. I mean, tobacco is another great one. Um, but if if this kind of propaganda or misinformation had been refuted decades ago, then maybe um, we, we wouldn't have even had uh, our opioid epidemic. Right. Let's um, talk about fentanyl for a little bit, because I follow you on the Twitter and I see you talking about fentanyl a lot because it seems to be getting a lot of press these days and a lot of negative press. It's, a, it's actually... It's a medication that Lizzie and I use all the time for procedures. It's very useful, but it does seem to be sort of like the boogeyman nowadays of drugs. 
why what happened how did fentanyl become this way how did fentanyl get this notoriety so that's a great question i use fentanyl pretty much every day at work too and i mean it is like a a wonderful drug um something happened it seems in 2017 where fentanyl became a, a literal boogeyman it can get you when you're not even using it um (laughs) what do you what do you mean so i think there was this incident uh in um east liverpool ohio i think where someone brushed powder off of their uniform and then developed very nonspecific symptoms and it became nationwide and then worldwide news that someone overdosed on fentanyl just by having been exposed to a drug user who got powder onto them. Wow, so like a cop like touched like a baggie or something or touched some powder, and the story was that that cop then got directly from the skin some sort of fentanyl exposure that caused some serious health issue. And then he passed it on in his DNA. <laughs> yeah, and the craziest thing, I mean, besides how wrong it is, is that all of these stories are still up. No one has bothered to like take them down even though this is totally untrue, fentanyl has been around since I think 1968 was when fentanyl was invented. It was probably FDA approved maybe in like the early seventies and has been used medically in the States since then. Um, I mean, it's used every day, 24 hours a day. I mean, in hospitals, in anesthesia, in ORs, in emergency rooms, in all these places all the time. First of all, I should also backpedal a second for our listeners who uh, aren't doctors or nurses. Just so you guys know, fentanyl is an an opioid. It's an opioid that we use in the hospital for a lot of different procedures and to control pain. Um, Let me me ask you this. Is this fear of fentanyl making the opioid crisis worse? Yes. How? Uh, Unequivocally, yes. Um, I think, I mean, I blame the bad reporting for causing all of this. I mean, I think... The fact that people are willing to talk about fentanyl in headlines um, rather than talking about things we can do to fix the opioid crisis was what I said earlier, like we're not talking about the real things um, in in the media here. Uh, And I think all these headlines, all these stories about people overdosing from being near fentanyl kind of trigger the next one. If, if If you're someone who doesn't know better, you see the news, you've now seen at this point dozens maybe more than a hundred stories where someone has had quote-unquote overdose symptoms which by the way are never real overdose symptoms at least not opioid overdose right um so then say you come into contact with a powder that could be fentanyl at a scene where maybe someone overdosed it probably was fentanyl Mm -hmm. um you're very likely to be terrified believe (laughs) that you have been exposed and develop real symptoms um and i mean there's a, a name for the phenomenon it's called the nocebo effect it's kind of the, the negative version of the placebo effect and the way you treat it is with placebos so people <laughs> who give themselves narcan for no reason will feel better because they think they've treated the problem right so as far as like acute overdose narcan is great but not long-term effectiveness um, so what do you think is needed? Is there a medical option or do you, for, for long-term addiction? Or do you think that it's really about the infrastructure of rehab and therapy and social support and things like that? 
So a lot of the uh, like social um, support systems, I mean, are probably the most important things here. And those are things that people really aren't talking about or working on. Um, I mean, if people have like a better upbringing, stable jobs, then their risk of developing addiction is significantly less. Things like buprenorphine uh, or methadone uh, medicines definitely treat treat opioid use disorder better than any sort of um, rehab program, um, better than therapy. Uh, and not, not that those things aren't valuable, but we definitely need more medicines out there. And that's another thing that's kind of a big myth that I have to deal with a lot is that people think using medicines to treat addiction is just quote unquote, trading one addiction for another. Um, and that's not the case at all. So a couple quick questions for you. And then uh, after a couple of quick questions, we'll let you we'll let you go because I know we've, we've kept you for a long time. We really appreciate your time here. A um, couple of things. One, because we're gastroenterologists and we talk about these sorts of things all the time. What's the strangest thing you've pulled from someone in an ER? Pulled from any orifice. Ooh. Any orifice. I thought we were talking about one orifice in particular. Um, we are GI doctors, so we're biased. Yeah. But we want this. This podcast is for everyone, right? Yeah. But if you, had, if you found something funny in an ear, we'll take that. Yeah, it's less yeah, funny. Ear the stuff is never funny. that funny. It's yeah. usually the craziest stuff in ears is usually bugs, um, and nobody wants to think about that. Mm. It's really hard to pick just one. Um, I have found not always been successful at removing a lot of weird things uh, from people's rear ends. Um, I think if I had to give an answer for like the weirdest thing, it would be the answer that people always give. Um, if you tell me that you were doing like naked pull-ups <laughs> over a shampoo bottle and you directly, <laughs> directly landed on it, then I mean, That's a- I didn't, I didn't go to school for all these years to be lied to that badly. That's a um, great alibi, though. I never thought of that one. The naked pull-ups, because, you know, or of course. I fainted directly onto this. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I've removed vegetables. I think probably the strangest thing I have to say from someone's uh, butt was an, an egg. Wow. Yeah. Was um, it, wait, wait, then, wait, wait. Was it hard-boiled or raw? <laughs> That's the most important question. Every- it, or scrambled was this like in, <laughs> in pure form yeah it did not survive the process no <laughs> i was gonna say because a cracked egg really doesn't give anyone pleasure <laughs> um a, a lot of vegetables and then i mean i think the weirdest things from at least adults kids kids will put whatever in their mouth and swallow it yeah um but finding uh, a sacagawea dollar in someone's Ooh. upper gi tract uh I like that. There's like some political activism there. <laughs> yeah. There's some symbolism there's there. A, I think I mean, there's a I don't statement. think I said it's Chicago way, I think. So I should correct that. But um, yeah. Um, uh, Ryan, so Joe wasn't able to make it today, um, our co-host, and uh, he left us a message for you. We don't pre-screen these messages that he leaves, so it could be an utter disaster or it could be brilliant. You're going to find out in one second. Let me play it for you. All right. Hi, Dr. Marino. This is Joe. Thanks so much for coming on our show today. Just got a question for you and hoping you can uh, clarify for me. I don't understand why so many pain relieving drugs not only make a person feel better physically, but they also make people happy and oftentimes high. And I can tell you from experience from people I know, 
that's, you know, these drugs, when they make a person high or happy, they'll often result in abuse and addiction. I've seen it time and time again. What is stopping companies and or doctors to push pain relievers that do not have that mental high? Um, as a, if I were a doctor, I'd be terrified to prescribe uh, opioids in, in this uh, day and age because of the addiction um, that oftentimes will happen. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot. So that was a really good question. I mean, certainly like since the dawn of civilization, people have pursued mind altering substances. That's why like every civilization of record has had alcohol um, and people still do that today. So that is why people try drugs. People end up addicted to drugs is to try to make themselves feel better, to try to alter their existence. The, the DEA for, I don't always agree with things the DEA does. Um, and I think they've, they've come down a little too strongly in this regard. Um, but anyone who it has questionable prescribing practices can be, and usually will be investigated by the DEA. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of systems in place today that prevent that from happening. Um, and what's really unfortunate, though, is that people who have been on opioids for like since the 90s, maybe, um, and are totally dependent on them to function, whether that was appropriate in the first place or not, are getting cut off today. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that wasn't the original question, but I think <laughs> there are a lot of systems in place and it ends up actually kind of hurting people in the long run um, that we've had this kind of wild pendulum swing to one extreme and then to the next. Uh, and ho I'm hopeful that in the future we can kind of correct to a more centric centric approach. Right. right. And opioids do have a place in short term use because they are wonderful pain medications, but we need com drug companies and doctors to be incentivized to research and prescribe pain medications without the happy and high states of being and that hopefully is the future and and we know now to avoid opiates and opioids um and hopefully from listening to this podcast and just reading the news because it's all over the news these days we can help educate people so we really appreciate your time thank you so much for coming on the show is there anything else you want to plug or mention um i mean i think just one last thing on this same topic if people are concerned about overprescribing opioids or creating addiction or the profitability, which are certainly all very real things everyone should be concerned about, I mean, this is kind of a great argument for making drugs available to anyone who wants to try them. If, say, someone really wants to try heroin, they're going to find a way to try heroin. If we can make it available so that they don't have to buy and sell oxycontin prescriptions um we can kind of take out a lot of these kind of corporate and corrupt uh and other distasteful aspects um that people worry about without like necessarily increasing drug use um, and so i know that legalization of drugs in general is a topic that receives a lot of controversy but countries that or areas there are not a lot of countries that have done it, um, have shown that there's no increase in people who use drugs and usually generally a decrease, um, as well as decrease in like criminal activity and the kind of downside that we worry about with this like corruption, addiction, uh, and forcing extra prescriptions on people. Well, that's 
that is going to be our next topic when we bring you back on. We're going to go into that a little bit further. But thank you so much for coming on today, Ryan. We really appreciate it. Um, can we find you at Twitter? What, what's your uh, handle there? So my handle is Ryan Marino, R-Y-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-O. Thank and you. thank you so much for having me. Oh, it was, a, it was a blast, Ryan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. We're recording. I was about to do an and. I think your ands are getting higher and higher. And. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. All antidotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.